This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with Head of Performance at Cardiff Rugby, Tristan Bevan. He discusses his journey from NCAA athlete into a high performance coach within rugby, some of the elite athletes he's worked with, such as Sam Warburton and Jonah Lomu, and the effect these types of players can have on a group, as well as his book, Our Race, discussing the 4x100 metre gold medalist from Great Britain and their journeys up until this point. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure you share it with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. Right, perfect. Tristan, really appreciate you giving up a bit of your Tuesday morning uh, with me, with us. How are things your end? All okay? Yeah, apart from it being wet outside, it's great. Thank you, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that is UK weather. It's always going to be a little bit wet and windy and stuff. So, uh, yeah, coronation, we had a bit of sun, so that will do, I think. Um, yeah, for, for people that maybe don't know you, um, do you want to, I guess, give us a little bit of a whistle-stop tour of, of who you are and what you do and, I guess, how you've got there as well? Uh, I'd like to think that a majority of people don't know me, but um, it's... Um, I work with Cardiff Rugby um, as head of performance, and previously I was with Wasps for um, for a period um, before their obvious tragic sad demise, and um, in a similar role. Uh, and prior to that, uh, believe it or not, I was actually in Cardiff prior to me going to Wasps uh, when they were called the Cardiff Blues. So, um, as far as how I got to uh, where I am currently, um, back in the late nineties, I was a very average runner and uh, I went to Michigan State University in America uh, to try and compete on the American college circuit um, and uh, crumbs it was uh, an eye-opener to say the least where you had all these scholarship athletes from in my case in Michigan from Chicago Detroit whose means I suppose of supporting their their entire education was through sport and uh, $35,000 a year tuition costs um, the, the the quality and the competition for sporting scholarships was incredibly high. So I was running uh, just around 50 seconds for the 400, which was decent enough as, a, as an 18 year old in Wales. But then you go to the States and, um, you know, they laugh at me if I couldn't run a 48 for the 400. Um, and you'd go to Tuscaloosa, Alabama one weekend and you'd go to uh, New Orleans and you'd see Michael Johnson and see Marion Jones and see sort of Olympic athletes in their preparation prior to coming over for the Diamond League in Europe, competing against a little, a little fella from Neath who's trying to make his best in, in Michigan State. So that was to me my first experience of the Darwinian effect of sport, of how, um, you know, when you cross the white line, when you compete, nobody cares the preamble that came to it. It's how you perform on that day. And, um, you know, if you're, if you're running 48s, like I ended up doing in the end, running against people 44s, there's only one winner. Um, so when I was there, I met Steve Black, who uh, obviously everyone knows Blackie, who sadly passed away last year. An inspirational figure, a very funny man, a very educated, intelligent man. And um, he pretty much gave me the, the catalyst for my career where um, I came back to Wales for a summer, I believe it was, to save my parents when I was in Michigan. And, and bumped into him. And he just started with Wales uh, as a fitness coach under the Graham Henry era when the World Cup was in Wales. And we just hit it off as people. Um, he, um, he engineered my first job, which was in Newport, um, before rugby went regional in Wales. And um, we stayed relatively close um, up, up until his passing last year. So uh, when Danny Cipriani was with us in Wasps, um, Sips and, and Blackie were, um, you know, they were very, very close. And it, it was wonderful for me because I caught up caught up with uh, with Steve a few times when we played against Newcastle. Um, so it, for me personally, I, I don't think I'm the best coach uh, anywhere near um, in sport. And uh, there was a combination of experience and luck and geography and personality that got me to the position where... I considered, oh, I could actually do this as a living. Um, now, since then, I've been working in sport for 22, 23 years. I've made a lot more mistakes than I care to mention. I'd like to think that I've learned from those mistakes. Um, but it is an absolutely fantastic and enjoyable way to make a living. 
Perfect. I think loads of stuff that we're going to be able to go into there. So we see how we get on time wise. But I think firstly, and you've obviously mentioned there kind of guidance around coaching and stuff being obviously from Steve Black. And I know reading in the media, the, the amount of people that came out to say what a, what a great guy and individual he is, I think is a testament to obviously his memory and stuff. What was it about those interactions that you had that made you, I guess, have that hunger for coaching or made you think that actually this interaction makes me want to go on and have a career in this area? Uh, I suppose for me personally, because because track and field athletics is so black and white, everything is controlled by distance, time um, and performance, that I I drew that straight line between working hard and having having results. And... um, I suppose in a team sport like rugby, there's so many different variables and so many different interactions across the board. <clears throat> you know, you've got you've got different positions with different skill sets that you have to absorb into your training ethos. Um, and someone like when, when I met Blackie, I, I remember he 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 caught me at an intersection where I'd gone to America, and I'd be struggling to break 50 seconds for the 400 meters for probably the, the previous five years. And within five weeks of being in the states, and someone completely changing my training program. I dropped almost two seconds off my PB. And that was my first sort of interaction or awareness, if you like, with how someone's training vision or some, someone's coaching ability can completely um, change you. And um, they, the, the NCAA is a ruthless and a very numbers-based organization. And what I mean by that is, is that all the universities are incentivized to compete against one another in conferences, and they only really go for the best athletes. The, my, my recollection of my time there was um, you effectively were every single day and every single training session was an appraisal of you as a person and as an athlete. So it was very, very ruthless. And then I had that as a, as a background to my own experience. And then I met someone like Steve Black, who was all about the person, all about the experience, all about the love of the game. Um, and I suppose with, with someone like Blackie, the difference between him and the other coaches was he would be an exceptional coach for people who are already brilliant. He would be able to push someone from the 95% to the 98%. Whereas I suppose the majority of other coaches are excellent, again, people from 60% to 80%. Um, so that just interest that, that that intrigued me. I thought that was very very interesting. And do you think those are two different skill sets? Do you think that you're able to be, live in both spaces, or do you think that actually certain individuals are better placed to be with those top performers and critique them and challenge them and support them in a slightly different way than you would for those sixty to eighty percent people? I suppose my, my um, outlook on this has changed over the years. I genuinely believe the best coaches should be working in academies. The sad fact is, is that from a financial incentive point of view, that's simply not the case. But if you had a model where the best coaches delivered the best skill sets to people when they're at their most malleable, which is at the ages, I'm I'm guessing you're between 14 to 20, I suppose, then you'd end up with a much larger pool of skilled individuals who probably were uh, more adept at, at, at at the game or at the sport. Um, and of the continuum of, of chronology from, from birth all the way through to sort of um, to greatness in sport, different people would have different skill sets to be able to coach different things at different stages. I don't think that you can be a coach in a sport and be able to coach under sevens and, and, and also at Olympic level. I genuinely have yet to meet someone with that wide range of abilities. I think it's a really interesting point. And I could get be getting a team wrong here, but I believe it was Borussia Dortmund uh, when Southampton played them a few years ago in the academy and they came across. And um, they did something similar to that where all their full-time staff were on the same pay scale from okay. under eights through to under nines, tens, whatever it was. And essentially the academy manager year on year would make an assessment of the group's throughout the age groups and fit what he felt that group needed with a particular coach that removed the financial incentive to go well I have to go and be an under 18s coach or I have to be an under 16s coach because I get paid more and it was more around actually 
what does what is the characteristics of this group and who's got the best skill set to support them um so i think that it's interesting like you said there kind of where you sit on that pathway you're probably not going to be brilliant at all of them but actually if you've got a collection of staff that can be suitable for the group that probably allows you to give them a wider berth of experiences which should help their development as people and then obviously as players i completely agree with you i mean one example that i use quite often is when when um when i was at wasps um we lost the 2017-18 Premier League, uh, sorry, Premiership final to Exeter Chiefs. And Exeter Chiefs, to my mind, during that period, and probably still past the point of them winning Europe, was the best example of a wonderfully talented head coach in Rob Baxter, um, being able to appraise the resources that they had as players, matching the resources which they have with players with the game plan that they wanted to play, and training that way. So alignment of the resources with the game plan that you want to play the game in and the way that you train is probably the holy grail of getting your team to, to perform at its highest level. Um, now, just because I've got that uh, as, a, as a blueprint to how I want to sort of coach at Cardiff or, or even advise people around at Cardiff on what we want to do, doesn't mean that it always works. Um, so, for example, you know, if we wanted to play a very, very quick game, um, it wouldn't serve our purpose if we had a forward pack like La Rochelle, who have got, you know, I don't know, six or seven guys above 130 kilograms. Whereas if we wanted to play a, um, a slow set piece orientated game in Cardiff, it wouldn't serve us well if we had a load of 100 kilogram um, racing snakes. So you have to appraise what you have and train according to what you have. Um, it's challenging, but it's also the bit that makes sports so intriguing. And I think this is something that's becoming increasingly challenging within football. And I guess it'd be interesting to hear perspective within rugby on this, that managers don't actually hang around long enough to get a collection of group of players that might work in their image, if you like. I think like I saw like Chelsea have had four first team managers this season. Southampton have three, Tottenham have had three. So actually, if you have an idea of how you want to play, you're you're more likely than not going to have to put up with some individuals in the short term at least that maybe don't fit that and it, again you might have a pack that's heavier than you'd like or you might have runners where you want people that are a bit more physically imposing how do you think as a collection of staff you manage that dynamic by going maybe this is my idea of how I'd like to play but it's going to be a journey from where we are now to there and is there certain I guess markers that you'd put in the ground to try and get to that point you're right. I mean, the luxury time has disappeared from rugby as well, man, because you have a mandate of probably 12 to 18 months in rugby after where you've you've started in, in a team for people to know what you're about. Um, as far as the markers, I can see why teams would, in periods of um, of tough times, so if, you know, if you're in the bottom third of the Premier League or if you're looking at relegation in any, in, in any league whatsoever, the financial costs of that are so huge and also would probably cost you your job that you end up reverting to type and just saying, well, okay, we'll just get the team as prepared as possible to the demands of the game and then I'll just bend my own philosophy and, you know, and, and just try and hang on to my job here. Um, I suppose that's the pragmatic way of looking at it. Um, I've, I've learned the lesson to my cost in my career of having my philosophy as an SNC coach or as a, as a performance coach override what the necessity of the squad asks of you. So I, I might, I mean, I do have a huge bias on speed, but I'm convinced to my end that it's the difference between a good player and a great player in, in the majority of sports. But in the time it would take me to prove that to a, to a, to a cohort of players, we might be 12th in the league. And nobody's interested about this guy who's just banging the drum for speed because all we want to do is climb up the league. So the context of where you put your own philosophy is very important. Now, now rugby has got, I'd say 90% of SNC coaches in rugby have got this strength first, fitness second, speed third, I guess mobility fourth kind of uh, outlook. I'm, I'm generalising there and, and people will shoot me down for that, but that's, that's what I've seen, I suppose. Now, I'm not quite sure if that's apt anymore. So I think philosophy, an SNC coach's philosophy, which is normally ingrained in um, you know, your education, your own personal experience, 
I think that wave crashes against the shores of reality sometimes when you actually start getting your own philosophy judged in the league table. And you've mentioned there around you being speed first and the challenges that would face if you were to go fully down that route. I guess the first question is, why are you speed first? Do you have a understand the basin of why you are there? And secondly, you mentioned around, you know, your ideology being challenged by results. Um, how do you think that plays with SNC coaches, either practice or, or curriculum or ideologies when they are going, this is my ideology, this is what I'm putting in place, but we are bottom of the premiership at the moment? Yeah, I'll, I'll revert back to the point that you had earlier, which is, at certain points in in in, um, in in a player or a team's life, where you know whether you're coaching the academy or semi-pro or professional, you will have philosophies that suit that time. I mean, someone like Sean Cumming in Bath, um, uh, Professor Till in um, uh, in Leeds Becker have done some great research as far as identifying um, the age-appropriate forms of training. I just find at the top level that speed. Is crucial now. I always use the golf analogy with uh, with my director of rugby, which is in golf. If you could hit the hole in one every single every single hole, um, you'd win the you'd win the tournament. Now, if you look at people like Harry Arundel in England, um, we had Christian Wade at Wasps. You had Lewis Rees Salmon at plays for Wales and Gloucester. These guys can score hole in ones. What I mean by that is they can have the ball in their own twenty-two. And without passing it to anybody else or any interaction, they can score a try from whatever they can on the field. Now, that's obviously the easiest way of scoring. Majority of tries in rugby are scored by multiple phases um, or set-piece kind of work. So that involves strength work, that involves fitness. But having the ability to score a hole in one does put the opposition on the back foot. Um, I mentioned Danny Cipriani earlier. He said something like he was obviously one of the sort of thinkers of the game. And... I'm, he didn't say this to me. I remember overhearing him say this, where in having real weapons on the outside of the field. So I remember we had Christian Wade on one wing, we had Josh Bassett on the other, um, you know, players that could finish from anywhere on the field. It would make the field wider. So if you're in the middle of the field, you have to actually watch the outside both ends in order to sort of counter the threats of speed and agility out wide. And in doing that, you actually open up the defence for people on the inside to be able to exploit a little bit more. So... Having sort of weapons, having physical weapons in your team, whether they're huge forwards like Will Skelton in La Rochelle or um, or Harry, Harry Arundel, um, people like that put a seed of doubt in other people's minds. So that's why I suppose at the level that I coach, that I think speed and agility and the ability to beat the man is so important. I don't know if you're a fan of NFL, but if you are, watch the Miami Dolphins this this uh, coming season because I'm a Miami Dolphins fan and they've basically done what you said there. So they've got uh, five individuals um, that can all run below 4-3 for their 40-yard sprint times. And basically they've just said, we want to be the fastest team in the NFL and we're going to have individuals that just open everything up because of how quick and agile and stuff they are. And what I will say, just from an outsider's perspective, it's more fun to watch. Like Christian Wade, I know... You know, growing up as a relatively young kid, enjoyed watching him just dart around. Jason Robinson was the same. You know, yeah. you enjoy watching those players because you kind of get off your seat and go, okay, what are they going to do now? So it is a slightly more enjoyable than just playing football out of your hands that I've seen a lot of recently. Oh, for sure. And I mean, the, the irony with having the ability to, to run repeated speed often is, you know, every, every morning before I take my son to school, we watch YouTube clips of the previous... Um, previous football highlights in the Premier League. And you look at the players that Man City have got at the moment, you know, as, as the game goes on and the people have more kilometres in their legs, that's when the gaps appear. And when the gaps appear, the quick guys and the fit guys are able to exploit it. Now, there's nothing worse from a performance point of view than t seeing a team slowly run out of petrol as the game goes on. And the way, I, I genuinely feel the way you counteract that is just by getting fitter and quicker. I think that's a really nice uh, point for us to divert across then. So if, if that's one of your key and core beliefs, um, how do you go around creating a squad that's capable of doing that? So obviously we've pretty much finished the end of the, the football season. We've pretty much finished the end of the rugby season now. Um, people will be putting plans in place in terms of talent ID, but then also getting into pre-season and what that looks like. So for yourself, uh, performance base, and you're going to you know have a lot of uh, plates to spin, 
how do you go around putting those uh, blocks in place to get your team ready for when you know September comes around and they're they're into a bit of the season that they're able to be fit and strong throughout the the eighty minute fixture. Listen, I mean, this is where philosophy comes comes back into play. I suppose there's many ways of, of getting someone quick. Um, you know, you reduce their sorry, you, you improve their strength to weight ratio, so you, you get them a little bit lighter and you get them a lot stronger. Um, that's the same thing as as making your car like there and putting a bigger engine in. At the end of the day, sort of peak torque is going to get bigger. Now, you can also reverse engineer it, eh? which which is to say, if you look at sprinters around the world, there's a reason they look the way they do. You know, muscular, lean, powerful. It's because sprinting is a form of hypertrophic strength. At the end of the day, it's you know it involves a lot of reactive work on the floor. It involves a lot of rate of force development in sprinting, and to carry over the other way towards getting stronger also works. Um, what I couldn't get my head around uh, during my Michigan experiences was how athletes who'd never really been that strong in the weight room, or sorry, who would ne never spent much time in the weight room, the first time they started lifting, they were, they were starting at an exceptionally high level. It was because their bodies were already able to express power and strength through other means, which then when they went into the weight room, they could express it by pushing bars and pulling bars because they already were strong. So it kind of goes both ends. It doesn't have to be a foundation of strength initially to express into speed. It can go the other way. Um, now, the majority of research coming from, from academia does go towards strength being a foundation. Um, but, um, but that's the exciting thing about science, right, is it keeps on evolving. Yeah, 100%. I think that uh, academia and the practical implementation is a quite interesting space at the minute because you're getting a lot of stuff coming out, challenging people, I mean, even one of the former guests megan hill talking around uh bio banding and uh relative age effect etc so it's a really interesting place of people trying to get those marginal gains in inverted commas from a practical perspective from you how much would you look to do in the gym and how much would you look to do out on the pitch and you know do uh, game relative exercises or functional practice which increases running or strength etc um i suppose that depends on what you've got um Again, I mean, I, I, I won't name the teams, I won't name the individuals because that's not fair, but I've coached in the past where you walk on, you, you praise the squad that you've got and it's a huge squad full of already quick players. So you think, well, the best way I can serve these individuals is to get them to repeat what they've already got. And then you, you go to a, another squad that I, I coached in the previous times, which was the opposite, which was they were very, very fit. Um, but there wasn't much physical weaponry. We didn't have much size to cross the gain line. We didn't have much speed. So therefore, your approach as a coach has to be tailored either towards super strengthening or if your weaknesses are so glaring that they might cost you, is that you're trying to pl plug those gaps. So, for example, now in, in Cardiff, we, we've got sort of, we've got a lot of um, omnicompetent physical, so physically omnicompetent teams, players in the team. So you've got many players with a good level of strength, many players with a good level of fitness. Um, we, we're quite lean and we are looking effectively to go, right, so where is the next stage of going here? It's not something that's guided by philosophy. It's more guided towards what the rugby coaches would want us to give to them. So depending on what kind of style of play we want to, uh, game we want to play, you might have uh, the attack coach saying, well, look, I want... Strike runners, I want huge players in the centre that just batter the opposition down. Or he might say, no, I want ball players who can sort of glide on the outside. So you have to work um, as a collective. I, th I think the information flow has to come from above down um, when it comes to the way that we, that we want to train. And how do you manage that with the players? Because I can imagine that, um, let's take a Danny Cipriani as an example. Because I think that, like, if you said to him, okay, what we want to do is turn you into a real hard hit in number 10 who's just going to constantly carry the ball. I know Fight Half wouldn't necessarily do that. You're essentially changing his skill set from what he's potentially good at. And I'd imagine, you know, you're going to be having those conversations with players that sometimes, like, I know you've had success here, but the way the team wants to play, we're going to, you know, slightly change the way we want you to play which means you're going to need to be a couple of kgs lighter or you're going to have to utilise different resources that might not be their super, super strength, but might be one under, underneath that. 
how do you begin having that dialogue with the players so that they buy into, you know, if they need to do additional reps or if they need to do extra runs or anything like that? It's more guided towards the, the demands of the position, I suppose, where you, you, using that example you had there was, I think, I think the majority of professional sportsmen now, um, let, let's take a prop as an example. So a prop's main reason for being is to, is to be able to scrummage and to be able to play a part in the line-out and to be able to sort of defend around the rucks. So you need to probably in the modern game be pushing 125 kilograms and above. Um, now, you, you've, you've got the muscle mass argument, which is having a 110 kilogram lean prop um, is as effective as a 150 kilogram fat one. But when it comes to the isometric forces involved in scrums, I'm still to be convinced that a huge French pack full of heavy, how do I say this conservatively, heavy players that don't pay much attention to body composition isn't better at the isometric scrummaging exercise than a bunch of, uh, let's stereotype you, okay, but a bunch of very lean, powerful, muscular Irish forwards. In my mind, um, and in my experiences as well, is that weight wins when it comes to those isometric exercises. So if you, if you look at the four or five previous World Cup winning teams, and also you look at the European Cup, um, European Champions Cup in rugby, they are primarily dominated by big teams. So big packs, fast packs. Um, so you're always looking to identify what is the actual demands of the position. So um, if, if you see uh, the, the way that some teams want to prepare, sometimes it's guided from the, from the philosophy of, of the coach and he will choose sometimes to choose players that align to his philosophy. But sometimes that situation that you mentioned there, which is, well, you need to pull someone aside and say, look, we need to change your, um, your emphasis here. That does happen, but it's, it's relatively rarely. And how important is it for you to find a director of rugby that you kind of align to a certain degree of philosophies with? Because I imagine it could become increasingly challenging if they have a certain style of player of wanting to do stuff. And then you're going, yeah, but if you look at the physiological data or the stats that we're getting, that counters this. And then you have a different viewpoint. So how important is it for you to find someone that you go, actually, in terms of the way that we align, it doesn't have to be perfect, but we have some base principles that we both agree on of how we want to play. Yeah, I think it would be a little bit of a, of a shame if you had a strong director of rugby with strong philosophies and, and, and biases and you had a head of performance that pulled in the opposite direction. I mean, you have to face in the same way. Um, I've, not personally myself, but I've experienced other, other friends in the industry having that tug of heart where they know what they've been asked to do is probably wrong. Um, but I've worked with many, many very good coaches in my career, like David Young in, in Wasps and Cardiff, Ian McIntosh, Alan Lewis, lucky enough to work with Graham Henry, Phil Davis. These, these people, they've all got their own experiences based upon the same things I'm telling you now, which is what they find has worked for them in the past, what they find hasn't worked for them in the past. And I think sometimes removing opinion, removing your own personal opinion from the equation is a very liberating thing. Whereas if I remove this speed bias I've got and look at the Cardiff squad, I might think to myself, do you know what? The stats say this, or the experience of how we play best says this. And it's probably quite liberating as a coach to think, right, I'm going to remove my own opinion from here. I'm just going to see you know, what causes us to win, what causes us to lose. You know, what do the players respond best to? All these things are sort of variables that you have to play into the dynamic of how you prepare. And when you're, um, I guess, when you're looking at a group or you're preparing a group and, and whatnot, within football, we've moved away from isolated running. Um, okay. And what they invariably try and do is to make it all functional. So they'll do something called a rondo, which they try and get possession practices and do a little bit out of that. Or they'll make everything functional. Um, 
so that the players never actually think about running this kind of disguise. So using it in a, in a rugby example, it might be that you have an individual who catches the ball down the wing and then you've got a recovery runner coming from central areas. They both essentially are going to re- recover 20 metres and then you try and make a tackle or something like that. So they are running at full pace, but they're disguising it within a recovery type practice. Sure. What are your thoughts or how much do you do around this area? Do you do any isolated running with your groups or is it more of a functional type work as well? It's both. I mean, obviously the players would prefer, what we, we call them some small side of games or anaerobic games. Players prefer that because they're more fun. Um, but the evidence does show if, if we did, I don't know, 15-100s on a one-minute turnaround, for example, and you, you set a time for this, which would be, I'm talking hypotheticals here, but say 15 to 17 seconds for each 100-meter run. The high-speed running that you'd achieve from that and the actual, the, the unseen, unmeasurable effort of having, having to get off the line and apply yourself fully <clears throat> does not apply in small-sided games. There's always that decision to be made in small-sided games. Do I chase that hard or do I not? I'm not going to be exposed sometimes if I really work so maximally in anaerobic games. However, if you if you choose the right um, temperament, so for example, the sevens game in rugby, where if you're playing full pitch with 7v7, you will get exposed if you want to make in every single chase. So there's always a context to everything. And this is why GPS becomes useful. But if you're having an overloaded small-sided game, so I'm talking um, 8v8, for example, on a half-size pitch, you'll always get two players in each team that are looking, I can have a little bit of a breather here, I'll let somebody else do the work. So even though GPS has been um, used now for probably 10, 15 years in sport, I think the unseen and measurable things, such as someone deciding to get up off the floor quickly and work hard five metres to their right, to make that tackle, which is not measured on GPS, sometimes is more important than, oh, I've just run 1,200 metres of high speed in that session today. You're a man after my own heart because I didn't want to ask that question thing, but that's exactly how I feel. I think that some of it is a psychological thing of actually, this is really hard and it's not enjoyable and I have to do it because there's going to be times in the game where it's going to replicate that, which is, this is getting really hard and this isn't enjoyable, but I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to do it. And I get that physically you you might prepare yourself in a way that's really replic- replicable to the game. But actually, I I think there's a strong argument to be say that some of the challenges that people face in games are psychological rather than physical based. Because, you know, if you look at the top level, most teams are very, very physically capable. They're, physically well prepared they're well supported but once they start um becoming under pressure under the fatigue etc it's the mind that goes to them like is it necessary so i'm glad that you said kind of that combination of the two of actually yeah do some small-sided stuff but at times maybe just exposing that a little bit of that psychological piece is is useful yeah i think that plays into what we mentioned earlier as well which is I don't think there's a hierarchy in development of, uh, of an individual in sport, but there are certain walls that you have to climb on, climb over before you get the next wall. So what, what does seem to occur rarely, but um, it's more prevalent year on year, is, is that the academy players get um, treated as if they're fully-fledged professionals as far as the support they get, the... Um, you know, the expectations of them regarding facilities, resources, management, uh, player loading, all these things are applied on academy and semi-professional players because I guess those coaches at those levels look at the professional game and go, well, that's what professional is, therefore we can apply that the same. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with, right, ditch the GPS vest, guys, you know, if you're, if you're academy or semi-pro, we're going to find a hill here, we're just going to basically work hard there'll be an undisclosed amount of rest and in order to actually it's, it's like Joe Kalazagi one of the, one of the sort of most famous Welsh boxers ever he chose to train in a rundown, cold wet damp Newbridge gym because it put him into that Rocky 4 in the snow kind of mindset 
Um, whereas I think a lot of the academy players are a little bit too Ivan Drago. Have I taken this metaphor a little bit too far? <laughs> yeah, it's a nice one. I, I think that, you, you know, you're spot on with it in terms of actually how do you keep the players humble and grounded in that environment to say, listen, every environment you go into isn't going to be perfect, but it could be a really good and useful development tool. So, yeah. you know, every pitch you come to, isn't going to be in a football context a carpet it's not and you've got to find a way to play that if you're in your FA Cup and you're playing for Liverpool if you've managed to make it all to all the way to that and then you go to Colchester away and it's a bit bobbly do you think the Liverpool fans are going to accept you going well it was a bit bobbly today that's why we lost probably well, not they're probably going to be going no you're a professional footballer you should be able to deal with it so I think but as a as a professional that's what it looks like but also understanding where you are in, in the dynamic of, you know, if you are semi-professional or after academy, you don't have to, it doesn't have to be the same. It might just be, you know, a 1.5 to their one or something like that, that actually, you know, embrace that that is your environment and we're going to hopefully all thrive in this rather than feeling like, well, if I haven't got the GPS, I haven't got the water runners, I haven't got this, I haven't got that, that makes us any less. It doesn't. It's just that's the part of the pathway that you're on now. Yeah, I mean, Dave, Dave Collins has done, has done some great work as far as the Rocky Road to success. And I genuinely feel that that is a, um, it's a truism in sport. Whereas um, there, there are many players that I've coached in many teams who from a young age were either released from their academy uh, or were not selected by a certain coach. And you have two choices then. You can either throw your towel uh, in or um, you can prove them wrong or you can go away and work on that aspect of your game that you need to improve on and it's so prevalent that players who go through those sort of experiences earlier on in their career are normally the ones who are most driven most resilient and when the chips are down are the ones that you can probably rely on and so I think moving on slightly you've obviously mentioned here you've had a lot of um, opportunities to work with high-performing athletes um, and one thing that always amazes me I guess with those top level ones is kind of the aura that they have around them and you've obviously mentioned it from a running perspective of you know Marion Jones and Michael Johnson and you know seeing those individuals I'd be really interested to to hear from your experience is that a thing within the professional space where certain individuals kind of walk into a room and everyone else goes oh wow that is so-and-so and how how does that affect a group if they're in your building or how does that affect a group if you're going against them or what what does that look like the obvious one for me here is when Jonah Lomu signed for Cardiff back in 2005 where you know I grew up as a university student playing like everybody else did playing the Jonah Lomu rugby game um so that, that but to experience him coming in to the gym on a daily basis, you were like, this guy is a world superstar. He probably is the person who's changed the game the most. And you're right, the aura of him having there, uh, having, uh, being there with us, sent a message which was clear to everybody else, which is we are taking ourselves seriously. Um, but then that's no different to, I mean, going back to the sort of, to, to the mid 2010s in Cardiff, where you had Sam Orbiton, Lee Halfpenny, Jamie Roberts, Casey Lovelala, Xavier Rush, Tom Shanklin, these players walking in, sent a clear message to all other young players at the time that this is a place that actually takes excellence seriously. And from that period there, where those aforementioned players were sort of, were coming through the ranks, uh, it, it's no real surprise that you had players like Ellis Jenkins, Lloyd Williams, Josh Navidi, who ended up being Wales Lions players, because they looked to the players that were currently in the positions that they were um, uh, wanting to play in as the bar that they needed to get. So in a similar vein in Wasps, obviously someone like Danny Cipriani, um, James Haskell, jo George Smith was probably an excellent example where George Smith used to come in an hour before everybody else and just absolutely end himself on a bike in the gym. And after a while of seeing this, um, you know, I put my coach's head on and I was like, well, as far as load management, this might not be the best thing. Imagine how good he'd be if he didn't do this, all that kind of rubbish. And I pulled him aside over a coffee one day and said, sort of, you know, um, 
I can work you harder in sessions. Don't feel as if you have to do this extra 20 minutes a day on the bike. Um, but his answer was clear. He was like, well, then I'd be doing the same as everybody else. I don't want to do the same as everybody else. I want to be on the field knowing that I've done more than everybody else. And what ended up happening in time, and you can see this happening a mile off, is you had Jack Willis then joining them. You had Thomas Young then joining them. And you had a group of all the youngsters who were like, well, this guy is an icon of the game. Um, and I want to be like him. So having, having a good role model in a squad is worth its weight in gold. And how does that look on the reverse? So if you're coming up against it, which you would have done at points as well, you would have seen those individuals. Do you see a difference between some of the players that you're you're working with? Do you see that, or is that is that not so much the case? I, I think in creating a culture and environment um, which sends the message that you're taking yourself seriously, everything counts, right? So if you are um, there's that old adage, you know, a, a performer will improve by 15% if stood next to a high performer, but will regress by 30% if stood next to a, a lesser, um, you know, a bad performer. But it's it's all about sort of, does the gym in, in work reflect excellence? Does the food that we provide, is that any good? You know, is, is the experience that the player has when they come in day to day, um, does it create equivalence with, a place that takes itself seriously. And, and th that's also true as far as the players in the squad. Now, again, I don't want to embarrass anybody. Oh, it's not embarrassed because it's a compliment, but there was a year in Wasps where you looked through the squad and there was not a single didn't merit being at an elite club at an elite time in the club. The, the amount of quality in that team during that period was incredible. Now, the reason I say that is because most people who are, who are listening to me now who are coaches themselves could probably go through the squad with their peers and go, there's probably two or three players here who are on the way up in their career. So maybe they've come here a little bit early. And there's probably two or three who, if we had the choice or the finances, would probably be looking to move them on um, because they're, they're, they, don't, they don't sit there with a style of play or that, you know, they are they're coming to the top end of the curve and coming on the way down. Um, so everything about what the organisation represents, I think, sends a subliminal message to a player about how they should play. And having, having been around, and I think it's really important to say at this point, if you're a professional rugby player, you're very, very good at rugby. I think that sometimes fans on the outside look at it and go, oh, he's terrible. He's like, well, no, actually, in order to be a professional rugby player, you have to be very, very good. But you, there's obviously tier system there as everything. When you look at those elite performers that you've been around and you've mentioned some, some names here and there'll be other people that you haven't mentioned, what is the difference that you've seen? What is the difference in terms of the way they go around their work, the effort that will have been the study the rehab the analysis the game is there anything that you've been able to put your finger on to say actually in a lot of them this is a common thread of what makes a real elite high performer it's a, such a cliche right but the elite high performers are normally the ones who are very very professional they take themselves seriously they understand that there's a cost to everything that they don't do and there's a cost to everything that they do so the, the, the nice little sort of truism here is if you're gonna be an exception to the rule, if you're gonna be uh, lazy, overweight, underprepared, if you're gonna be an exception, you have to be exceptional. What, what sport, because sport is Darwinian, what sport doesn't like at the, at the elite level is exceptions to the rule that are not worth it. If you're gonna be an exception to the rule, you have to have something that makes you almost undroppable. So to answer your question is, those that have got legacy in the game, those that are well-respected, who are um, reliable to provide high performance, are normally very, very serious at what they do. I really like uh, what you've said there around the exceptional piece, because the, there's a few footballers that spring to my mind, like Adel Tarat, for example, that has openly <laughs> said that, he didn't take himself seriously at the start of his career and it's probably one of his biggest regrets because I've watched him for Benfica over the last couple of years 
and he actually does run around and start tackling people. And I'm just there looking at him going, you've done this 10 years ago, you would have been playing at Real Madrid, Barcelona, because what he was capable to do on the ball, I think um, everyone will know how, how good he player is. And imagine, you know, rugby being much the same. There'd be certain individuals you go, actually, if you consistently applied yourself in different aspects of the game, you would be unstoppable to a certain degree. Yeah, I mean, I was lucky enough a couple of years ago, um, along with Ben Mercer, who's playing the wing for Bath, to write a book um, with the four athletes that won gold in, in Athens in the, in the 4 by 100 meter relay. And I got to know Jason Gardner, Darren Campbell, Mark Lewis Francis, Marlon Devonish very, very well. And one of the things that struck me as far as those four guys, who obviously were Olympic champions, and you don't get better than that, was the standards that they set for themselves were immeasurably high. Like... I, used, I started off this conversation slightly self, um, self-indulgently self talking about my experiences in Michigan. Now, had I got to the Commonwealth Games as a sprinter, I would have been so chuffed. I'd probably still be wearing that this Welsh vest talking to you right now. That was kind of my, that what was success looked like to me. But to a lot of elite sportsmen, like even playing for the Lions for some people isn't good enough. They want to win at Lions Tour. So some people, you know, Playing for Real Madrid might not be good enough for Luka Modric. He might want to win five Champions League games. It's just Real Madrid is his way of getting there. There are some other people who've got a few like me, which is uh, as long as I play for a professional team, that to me is overreaching. I've already done over and above what I need to do. So uh, as you mentioned there, probably one of the things that you need to try and get is, is as many people with real, real high expectations for themselves in your team. I think you read my mind there because that was going to be my next caveat going into a slightly different conversation. So obviously you mentioned the book that you wrote and whatnot. And um, I'll be honest, I haven't read it. But what I did do is read a couple of summaries. There we go. We'll, we'll let you do a bit of a plug at the end of this. No, 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 that's well, no, What I will say, a lot of the reviews were very complimentary. Um, and one of the things... Is, it, by the way. <laughs> yeah. But what... Um, what one of the reviews said, which I found really interesting, was around the differences in journeys of those four individuals. And yeah. actually, whilst there were obviously similarities in terms of the sport that they did, the actual route to it really brought to life. A, they were just a generic runner and they were like, it was incredible to read how different different the, the, the stories were, etc. So I guess there's two questions for me is one. How prominent was that for you whilst you were doing your research to say, actually, we've got these four individuals that in a moment in time have come together, but the way they've got there is completely different. And two, how, from what you've researched, did they manage the dynamic of competitors to then teammates? Because that's the thing that fascinates me with the uh, relay is the fact that you can go from someone who you're going against in the 200, you're going against in the 100, and you might have knocked them out in the previous semi-final to get through to the final, but now we're we're together and we're trying to win. How how did those two things come about? Yeah, this this is an interesting one because uh, what I didn't really I'm, I'm good friends with Darren Campbell. I've known Darren for fifteen years and is an absolutely wonderful human being, brilliant sportsman, um, all the above. So when he came to Ben and myself with this idea of writing this book. I didn't realize how much the four guys competitively just didn't get on with each other. So when you consider, if you, you know, if you're a rugby player, there's, there's probably 60 of you in Wales that can operate at the top level. But if you're a sprinter, if you're not in the top two, you're probably not making much money. So, so Mark Lewis Francis was the direct threat to Darren Campbell's mortgage. And when you look at it through that prism, you think, how on earth did these guys unite to create because they, they beat also probably the best American um, four by one team on paper that's ever been. So when you add um, Morris Green, Kobe Miller, oh, God, I've forgotten who the other two were. Oh, Justin Gatlin was there, of course. When you add those four guys as individual 100 meter times in those Olympics together, they should have broken the world record by about a half a second. They were actually better than your Carl Lewis's and your, and, and your um, uh, oh, crumbs. I'm trying to think of other names here now, but they, they were probably on paper, the best American four by one team in history. So the, the four guys from Britain had no business whatsoever winning that race. But what you had was you had this unique combination of 
four guys with a real strong burning fire in their belly to achieve. And also they'd failed themselves in a relay sense over and over again. They, they understood how they worked as a, as a quartet and they realized their best chance of winning was to disrupt the Americans, put them off their game. It was almost like Wimbledon against Liverpool in the 1989 FA Cup final, where if you can get inside their heads, um, you might actually disrupt them. Now, the way they did that wasn't, wasn't much shouting and hollering. So Jason Gardner on the first leg had just become world indoor champion a couple of months prior. So if you are the American athlete, you're looking on the inside thinking, this guy's really quick off the mark. And then Darren Campbell, who was on the second leg, had just had a huge beef publicly with Michael Johnson, almost come into a fight in a nightclub in Athens that Michael Johnson, the sprinter, had accused him of faking. So Darren just wanted to take on the world and his wife. Darren was just furious with the way that he was perceived in the press. And even though he did have a hamstring injury, he was like, no, I'm just going to prove to myself and to these guys here that I'm, I'm the real deal. Now... On leg three, Marlon Devonish was the coolest, calmest guy you could ever get to. You know, he'd be the guy listening to his headphones, um, relaxing, almost asleep on the track. But then he was also the most dependable relay runner Britain has probably ever had. He's the most decorated relay runner and individual athlete that Britain have ever had. And, and then Mark Lewis Francis on the last leg. And the reason I laugh there is because I can still, I've watched the race a hundred thousand times in my own research. And you could have had a Ferrari Testarossa get up against Mark on that last leg and he would not have beaten him. He was just the most inner city Birmingham. He's from Smethwick. He's the most sort of come and get me. I'll give you as much as you, I'll give you back as much as I've got individual in the world at that time. So you had this sort of four individuals who had very, very strong reasons for overperforming. And sure enough, Jason had a wonderful start. Darren was effectively screaming on the back straight. And the Americans, by the time the, the, the exchange between, I think it was Gatlin and Kobe Miller on, on, on lanes two and three, legs two and three, um, they'd messed it up. And then by the time Marlon Devonish, who was this calm guy, flew past on leg three, um, Mark had maybe a meter's lead over Morris Green on leg four. And it was, to me, that was a nice little metaphor about how teams can actually work um, on their own individual strengths and overcome adversity. Yeah, I think that's a really nice anecdote, as you said, mentioning like, the characters and stuff around it. Um, how did, uh, I guess if, if you do know, how did they go around, you know, understanding each other's strengths and putting that in place? Because I could imagine from, from the story that you've told there, if you've got Mark Lewis Francis, who at times can be a bit of a lively character and is a bit of a inner-city in um, Birmingham boy, and if you catch Darren Campbell in the wrong time where he's being agitated because of external factors, that those could potentially clash and then that creates an issue. So how did they go around, I guess, one pacifying, but almost have a, a truce, if you like, of going, listen, for the best of all of us, this is what we need at this moment in time. I think they understood. Um, Britain had had a really poor Olympic Games. Uh, None of them had qualified for the 100 metres final. I don't think. Had Jason? No. Um, and they understood in time, you're not going to believe this. <laughs> I've, I've got Jason Gardner phoning me right now. That's ridiculous. <laughs> speak, speak of the devil and he shall appear, right? That's crazy. I mean, they say the Siri listens to you, but that's ridiculous. I haven't spoken to Jason in months. Wow. Anyway, um, should we start that answer again? Um, how did they get on as a four? I think they understood that because Britain had had a poor Olympics, that this was their chance of salvation. Um, they knew that they'd had a very, very poor semi-final, but still run quickly. And I think it was a case of, if we get this right, we might actually prove people wrong. The British press had also been very, very quite dismissive about their chances. So you had this sort of crucible building of all the little sort of talents culminating at the same time as them being able to look each other in the eye going, if we can put our egos to one side, we might actually win gold. Um, and they did. And again, like I, I, I can't watch that clip on YouTube. There's like a nine minute clip of the build up to the race. 
and knowing that I've gone through the journey writing the book with the guys, it does make me emotional watching the clip because these guys, it was the only time they'd run as a foursome. And this is my opinion, this is not theirs, this is my opinion. They have not been given the respect due by the British establishment in sport on how, how they achieved and what they achieved. Uh, and I compare them with Team Sky, I team, compare them with the rowing. So, you know, the, these are sports that work as a four and a five. And they are celebrated in Britain because, you know, the British cycling team, fantastic for years. British rowing team, amazing for years. Here's a four, collection of four guys who probably achieved a harder task than all the aforementioned sports, but was still written off as, oh, it's only a really medal, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, I've pulled a face there for people that can hear it, but I do understand exactly what you're saying, that actually every year people will watch the relays hoping that Great Britain do well in it. You yeah. know, it's, it, it, if, if I know most people that don't watch the Olympics from start to finish and they'll go, oh, when's a relay on? And that's the one they watch with the hope that, you know, Great Britain will. And I think that for those individuals not to be given the credit in terms of you know succeeding getting a gold medal against the usa team and you know naturally if you watch the olympics now usa jamaica are both pretty handy in terms of their relay and normally they kind of go off and everyone else just following behind them so for, for them not to get the credit of it's a gold medal just to begin with and that actually that gold medal is against a fantastic usa team it is yeah, it's sad that, that that is the case. Um, I've got one last question for you before our final one. So, um, which is how did you feel about, I guess, switching sports slightly? So you've gone from being an athlete um, doing 400 meters and stuff to then obviously going into rugby and performance that base. How was that for you as an individual in terms of going, okay, you know, I've obviously grown up in, in this space and I've competed in this space, but I feel comfortable and confident and capable enough to go in and do an excellent job within rugby and making sure that you've got uh, credibility with the individuals that you're working with. Um, crumbs. I, I still feel as if I've got imposter syndrome after doing this for 23 years at the top level. I, um, I think the day that I feel completely confident in my own ability that I don't have anything to work on or reappraise is the day that I should give up. Um, there's always something, I'm forever questioning my own judgment, forever looking through the stats that we've got to see if I missed anything. Um, and it, it's a part of what I enjoy, which is analyzing success and failure to see if there are any sort of common threads that I can learn by. It's probably why I'm not that philosophically based when it comes to strength and conditioning, because yeah, you can get someone stronger, you can get someone more powerful. Does that lead to success? Maybe, um, and I'm, I'm forever sort of, forever trying to sort of figure out whether what I believe right now is going to change. Is it the right thing? Is it the wrong thing? And I think sport, like everybody watched the Moneyball film, and um, I do take inspiration from that kind of experience where there's always a way that you can manipulate things to happen in a positive sense. Um, and I suppose it's the interesting part of, you always wanna be that one person swimming against the tide somewhat that's found something. And that's that's kind of what drives me on. And um, yeah, to answer your question, I to this day, I still, I still question myself. I still get to the point of, right, I don't think that smells right to me. I'm gonna, I'm gonna look at that again. I think that's a super strength in itself though, right? Like being able to be humble enough to say, actually, I might not have answers, but I'll I'll have a look at them or not being defined by a specific way because thinking, well, this is the only way that you can win or this is the only way that you improve and actually going, you know what? There's a lot of context around this. There's a lot of statistics around this and I'm going to take evidence and I'm going to use that evidence to inform my practice. And then it becomes a cycle rather than going, if you don't do this and you're not going to be a winner. Exactly. I mean, who would have predicted 10 years ago that a six foot four guy from Jamaica who only took 39 strides to run the meters would be the best athlete ever? And who would have predicted where someone like Erling Haaland, who scores 51 goals in a season, um, you know, has he, has he got any real 
footballing qualities apart from scoring a goal? I'm not quite sure. You tell me. But there's always exceptions that are going to pop up to change coaches' opinions on what is right. No, perfect. Right, last question for me because I'm conscious of time, which is um, if I were to ask the the people that you work with or the athletes that you, you coach um, to describe you in three words, how would you hope they described you and why? Frustrating. Nice. I hope they say nice because I, I I don't want to be I don't want to be anybody who's not considered nice. Um, hardworking is one word, isn't it? Yeah, that's, that's one word. Frustrating, nice, and passionate. Perfect. Listen, Tristan, really appreciate your time. I think a great conversation discussing variety of performance sport and you know lots of food for four. So really appreciate your time and hopefully catch up with you again soon. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.